From Refinery29, I'm Elisa Kreisinger, and welcome to the second season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held. If a creative career path ever existed, it was centered on moving to New York or Los Angeles and landing a pilot or a book deal. Today, YouTube videos lead to TV shows, Twitter accounts get you published, and Instagram feeds result in lucrative brand sponsorships. In this new version of the creative career path, you don't even have to leave your apartment to be creatively fulfilled and make money. But with the democratization of creative content came the illusion of financial stability. So it's about time to ask, are the creative entrepreneurs we see across social media making any money? How do you maintain your creativity while still supporting yourself? Is there a world where the artist is truly free? These age-old questions, updated for today, still haven't been answered. And to be honest, my guests and I won't answer them either, but hopefully we'll give you a reason to stop asking, if only for a little while. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by Lean Cuisine. I've got a lot of opinions, and here's one. Sesame is everything, especially the sesame chicken from Lean Cuisine's Marketplace line, which is made with the kind of ingredients that I like to keep in my own kitchen. Natural chicken, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. Visit leancuisine.com backslash refinery29 for a coupon code and feed your phenomenal with Lean Cuisine. So how did we get here? The internet disrupted a lot of things, including how we build creative careers. If there was ever a traditional path, it was drastically disrupted when we, the people who put the pop in popular culture, gained access to quality cameras, high-end software, and a solid internet connection. The barriers to entry continued to lower as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram became the platforms to distribute and promote the content that many of us were making alone in our bedrooms. Access to equipment and an audience meant that marginalized communities, especially women, black, brown, and LGBTQ folks, were finally able to make content that reflected our realities. We didn't need an advanced degree or a huge budget for people to see our work. We could do it ourselves, and we did. I started mashing up Mad Men into feminists and The Real Housewives into lesbians during a time when visibility in pop culture was low, but demand online for queer characters was at an all-time high. I uploaded the videos to YouTube, and I watched them get shared all over the internet. It was a really great time to go from consumer to creator. Gabby Dunn also made that shift. She runs a popular YouTube channel with her best friend, Alison Raskin, called Just Between Us. Their queer and feminist sketches have amassed a large and loyal following. Here's Gabby. You know, I wasn't trying to, like, do anything on the channel. I just was already an out bisexual. Like, it wasn't like I was going on there to monetize my coming out or I was going on there to, like, do anything. Like, I was already out. So I just talked about that. The queer community is, like, super supportive. They were like, oh, wow, this girl's out. This girl's, like, talking about it. We were starved for content because mainstream entertainment sucks at giving us anything and so they latched on and then they wanted to follow on all platforms our fan base is kids who are in high school and college who are closeted or kids who are trying to figure out their sexuality and they want to see examples that's what i wanted when i was on the internet when i was young if they're not getting it on tv then they want to see you know an out person whose character quote unquote isn't going to die you know, on Instagram, on Twitter, they, they want to, like, get as much of that as they can. But somewhere along the way, the narrative about creative careers changed. 
Creatives weren't just making cool stuff that people watched and shared that disrupted industries and broke barriers. Apparently, they were also making a ton of money. It's just, I feel like I found my true calling, you know? What, being pretty? No, being like a vlogger or whatever. That ain't a real job. Jobs are like made, cook, reality, TV star. Uh-uh, I've been reading and people are making like a billion dollars a year off of their YouTube shit. In 2015, Gabby wrote an article for Fusion called The Sad Economics of Internet Fame. She was 27 at the time, and in addition to running the YouTube channel, she had grown her large following as a writer and as a video producer at BuzzFeed. She and many of her colleagues had amassed a certain level of fame online, and her article revealed the reality behind internet fame. Exposure doesn't always equal assets. To quote Gabby's article, Many famous social media stars are too visible to have real jobs, but too broke not to. Do you feel like you're adequately compensated for the creative labor that you no, do? No, we did the channel for three years for, for essentially free, which is so funny because that's what sparked the Fusion article was I was so upset when people – we would make – we've made – let's say we've made 200 videos for free. Maybe 10 of them are sponsored. And then people would comment and go, fuck you. Why are you making so many sponsored videos, sellouts? Why are you always every video is branded, you fucking sellouts? And I'd be like, I'm sorry. For three years, I've eaten like noodles and provided content and joy to you for free. And I'm getting, I'm getting paid for 2% of those videos. You can calm down. And they would just be like, there's too many sponsorships in a row. Why am I watching a minute of ads? And I'm like, you've watched, I don't know, a film's equivalent for free on this channel that I have lost money on making for you. And then you start to get mad and resent your fans because you're upset. So that's what spawned that article on Fusion was like, you guys don't have any idea the amount of money and labor that goes into making these videos for you for free that you go on to our sponsored stuff and bitch and moan. It's kind of insane that we put so much work into our channel and we make it like a tv show every time but if someone does you know my boyfriend does my makeup that'll get i mean three times the views that she and i get how does that feel when you see that joss whedon i just read like joss whedon had a quote where he was like i would rather make the show that a hundred people need to see than the show that a thousand people want to see and so i've been thinking about that a lot lately because it's like clearly you know the people that do watch our channel are like very invested and so like that's fine like if we're like a fucking cult channel cult hit channel or whatever that's that's okay like i'm being very diplomatic but am i fucking furious to see other people get a million views for like wearing a type of shoe for a week yeah obviously and in the long term it's like are they going to turn that into a show are they going to turn that into a book like what can you do long term are you going to be 45 and making a youtube video where you do the latest challenge like what's the long game and i think a lot of people have turned it into stuff like you turn it into a tour or like you do, you know, what Hannah, Grace and Mamrie do, which is like three women that are on YouTube. You know, they they turn it into a book and a tour and a TV show. And um, and like you just kind of keep moving on to the next thing. And so a lot of people when people are like, I want to be a YouTuber, it's like, no, you don't. You want to be a writer. You want to be a director. You want to be a producer. You want to be an actor. You want to be these things. And YouTube is the platform because I don't know how long YouTube's going to last. I mean, even people that would say to me, I want to work at BuzzFeed. I'd be like, no, you don't. You want to be a producer. 
it's been helpful that Allison and I were not just YouTubers. Because I think if we were just YouTubers, we would be screwed. And it sucks because there are so many great creators that are making stuff that is necessary. Like Stevie Bobby does incredible videos about that are just like sex ed, like queer sex ed, and they're completely demonetized. So what incentive does she have to keep doing that other than the fact that there isn't sex ed for queer kids and she's essentially providing a public service? Back in March of 2017, brands pulled money from YouTube after realizing their ads were running in front of videos for extremists that they didn't really want to be associated with, like a former KKK imperial wizard a Muslim preacher banned from the UK for inciting hatred, and a fundamentalist Christian pastor. But instead of fixing the problem and eliminating the extremist hate content, YouTube demonetized any video content that talked about race, gender, sexuality, or religion. Anyone making this type of content could no longer get a portion of the ad dollars from the ad that ran before their video. They kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater, if you ask me and eliminated the financial viability of the creators who made the platform a disruptive space in the first place. And that's part of the theme here. As a creator, you can't depend on the platform to have your back. If we make a video that we really like and it does well, like a sketch, we'll be like, okay, can we use this to make a movie? Or can we, use, can we pitch this to make a, a TV show? Essentially, we've sold four television shows in our time together, but we were only able to really get those meetings and stuff from the YouTube channel. But it allowed the executives to be like, oh, this concept has legs because look at how many views it has. They're like nervous. Execs are nervous. So they just want to see that it has some views. It didn't really, no one's ever been like, how many subscribers do you have? But they have been like, how much, how well did this video do? You have this thing that's working. How can you make that into the next thing? Growing the audience didn't really help with money. We are able to parlay that into other things. We happen to be talented in a mainstream way as well. We're two cute girls and we're, we're two cute white girls, which is, I think, helpful. And like, there's just these like little privilege things that kick into it. We've made money from selling these television shows. We've made money. We wrote a book. We made money from selling this book. I admire Cheska Lee, Francesca Ramsey. Like she makes these very informational, intense videos about race then people will go, oh, you have so many dislikes. She would always be like, it doesn't matter because you watched the video. Like, thanks for the view. And that's very funny to me because she parlays it into other stuff. Like, she gets it. She gets the game. And so she, like, parlays that, like, look at all these views that I have on this video. Clearly, this is something that people are interested in, even if they hate it. And then she just is making a pilot for Comedy Central now. Like, she parlayed that into other stuff because she understood that it wasn't about being liked. It was about the IP. I don't know about you, but I really needed to hear that line again. She understood that it wasn't about being liked. It was about the IP. It was about the IP. It was about the IP. Being famous online isn't about being liked. It's about using that following as proof that your IP or your intellectual property is resonating. Your IP is your ability to have full control over your creative career, no matter what platform it's on. Try to think about how to parlay stuff into other mediums and even be aware like Vine died, you know, so like be aware that like tomorrow YouTube could die. And what are you going to do then? The mean comments I think that started out when we started getting brand deals was from people's misconception that we were suddenly wealthy or that your favorite creator because you're seeing them a lot that they are rich, like visibility does not equal financial stability. And so a lot of my stress came from needing to seem like I was doing well when I wasn't. And I think that's a problem. Like 
take away the stigma from money stuff and be able to say like, look, I know you guys are seeing me a lot on the internet. I'm not getting paid that much to do that. Even at a big company, you're not getting a, a fair salary in a lot of these places. And so I think if you're seeing someone all the time, you know, on different platforms, you're like, well, they must be getting a lot of money to do that. And it's often not the case. Um, and so I think just being aware that your favorite creators might have different circumstances than you know about and aren't certainly not making TV money. Just got to get to that like season two TV money where you can start whitening your teeth and doing all that stuff. Gabby continues to take away the stigma around money in her podcast, Bad With Money. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big fan. So how do we negotiate our creative selves and our need to survive and pay rent? Amy Whitaker has made that question her life's work. So we are in my office at NYU. I teach visual arts administration, so business inside the art school to arts managers. And then I'm also a nonfiction writer. So I started in art museums. I thought they were public libraries for imagination. Went to business school to understand them as economic institutions. Long personal story, got an MFA in painting right after that, and then was like, what have I done? Will I ever have a job again? How do I manage my creative and practical selves? And then got to a point of realizing that that was my work. Amy's the author of Art Thinking, a manifesto and love story for how creativity and business go together. My life and my work are concerned with how we all balance our creative and practical selves and combine them and develop better language to talk about the gray area between selling out, having a job, being an artist, feeling self-actualized, all of that. I was talking to my brother and I described my working life and I said, you know, it's like it's all throw pillows and no couch. I have all these amazing projects, but what I really need just personally in terms of my personality and my risk tolerance is I need a big beige structure to put underneath them so that I feel more comfortable. And that's the full-time job. So I needed a job that allowed me some flexibility, but that's just how I'm wired. We live in a time when content creation businesses aren't working. Newspapers aren't working. We live in an age of democratized creativity but not yet democratized ownership. I personally think that price and value are pretty far out of alignment in those businesses. And I think that technology is just getting to a point where in the next five years, we'll start to change those marketplaces. What's problematic is that a large company like Google or Facebook has a concentrated interest and the bandwidth to have many people whose job it is to manage these things. And you are just one person and you've got a job and all these other responsibilities and it's too much for you. So you'd rather put stuff up for free than worry collectively about how a whole class of creative people get paid. Mm -hmm. It's the same structure of problem that unions were built to solve originally, where you need to gather together as a group of people. Um, but part of this is just endemic to the nature of business as a field. What I would say about this whole question of business on the internet is that there are two layers of creativity. There's writing the letter and designing the envelope. So writing the letter is creating the content and designing the envelope is figuring out the structure or the business model for the content. So if you're killing it on Instagram, the next step is to think about the structure of how your content gets distributed so that you can get paid. You've put something out there that's of value and you are getting something back that's not just likes, but financial support for you to be able to make the next thing. 
So that part of that balance would be first to start in the world as it is. How can you monetize in the world as it is? I think the distribution platforms will always be important, but right now the value that they're extracting is disproportionate. And that if artists could band together and have this conversation, they'd have more power to enact change. Thinking like a business person and thinking like an artist are really diametrically opposed, but I actually think there are a bunch of stereotypes that are circulating. I think there's a stereotype of the artist as a renegade outsider, and there's a stereotype of the business person as a congratulations on your all-male panel dude in a suit. And, and I think the reality is that bringing your whole creative self to your life even if you work as a management consultant, is a human problem. I think the first step is to acknowledge that there's been a pervasive prejudice that's anti-business. Mm. And part of that is because, you know, it's like the last thing you're still allowed to judge in an art mm. school is, is business. And I think part of that is because the way that business is taught is often as a set of rules. So it's highly inflexible. Like politically, it's like, this is the way it is. It's a ready-made, take it or leave it. You're either invited into a secret society or you're going to turn into a myopic self-promoter or totally sell out. That, all that rhetoric yeah. is, is very inflexible. And I think that business itself is a creative design medium and that you can build stuff out of it. And that it's really interesting to watch super creative companies build things artfully and nimbly. If you're making early stage creative work, you're taking a lot of risk and there's a lot of moral courage and bravery in trying stuff out. And you're never gonna know what the value is ahead of time and you're not going to do it efficiently because you're, you're experimenting. I think that the economic side of that is that those are all forms of investment and value creation and therefore you should own a part of what you're making. So you need these tools of economics to own royalties or advertising revenue on Facebook because you've made something that's a contribution. Mm -hmm. That I don't think that aligning price and value for you to be paid for what you're creating makes what you're creating any less artistically interesting. It just makes it more sustainable for you. Leonardo da Vinci, when he made the Mona Lisa, that was a side project, he had a paying gig. It was this public commission to do a massive mural of a battle scene. So basically, you could say he was selling out because he was making stuff for other people. He was answering other people's questions as opposed to asking his own question and answering it, which is our more modern notion of a creative person. Truly selling out has a lot to do with knowing what your values are and doing something that's counter to your values. It's not what you do, but how you do it. So this is why I think we have a need for much more language to describe this gray area between creativity and commerce. And I actually think that the compromise is part of the artistry that there's a layer of artistry that's just the idea and the brainstorm, and then there's another layer of artistry that's making it work in the practical world. I have very little patience for people who accuse other people of selling out. I just think we should all be a bit more libertarian creatively and give people a lot more space to support themselves in the way they need to support themselves and to make the work they want to make. And we should be a little bit more kind of honest and expansive about the reality of needing to make money in order to fund further R&D. I would say to anyone with a full-time job, excuse my French, but good fucking job. I admire your work ethic. And I think there's also a feminist issue of supporting yourself. And there's also 
a kind of issue of inclusion and diversity, uh, where there are a lot of people who don't have the economic privilege to not support themselves. So I don't think that we should be judging people for having full-time jobs. We shouldn't be talking about who's selling out. We should be talking about the design of economic systems so that everyone has support and sustainability for their creative work. Ashley C. Ford is famous on the internet for her candor and her ability to see through the bullshit that is the internet. She's also a senior features writer at Refinery29, so I pulled her into the studio to get her thoughts on how she remains creatively and financially stable. You have to figure out so many things that people tell you are the wrong things to be thinking about to create. You have to be thinking about who is my audience, what do they want, what are they willing to pay for? Right. Like those are probably the big three when you're talking about digital content and monetizing in any way. Part of the reason, to be perfectly honest, why I'm not a publisher is because I'm not sure how you would monetize independently doing the kind of things that I do. Right now, I'm working at a publisher because, A, I like the publisher <laughs> and I don't have to pretend. And B, because it helps me maintain the stability that I need to become the kind of writer I am trying to be. I am still in my learning process with writing. I hope I'm never out of my learning process, but I'm still in the part of my learning process where I do think that like being at a publisher is the best thing for my writing. The two jobs I've had recently that I would say got me to a place of financial st stability had nothing to do with how many followers I had. The jobs I got were about my work. And I do get that the visibility doesn't hurt. If you bring along with you an audience when you write something, people are going to want you to write for them. I've never, ever made money off of my social media. Do you want to? I think it might change the dynamic that I have right now, which is that I still feel, for the most part, despite the large following, comfortable enough to do and or say whatever I want to do and or say. I think some people will think I'm taking some sort of moral stance, and it's not that I, I can't sustain it. I am a bad pretender. I'm just not going to be able to keep up with a lifestyle like that. I've always just wanted to like be more of myself. Sometimes I think the idea of having a brand is also about stagnating and about keeping things the same and consistent, you know, and all those things. And I'm just, that's not how I'm trying to live my life. It's like, no, 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 I'm trying to grow. I don't want to have to stay the same. People still think for the most part that creative labor should be done just for the joy you should be doing it despite the fact that it is work and despite the fact that they are consumers of your work. A lot of people still just, they don't want to know about ads. They don't want to see ads. They feel like you're a solid if you have ads. I think it comes from the idea that people think having a large following means you're already getting money. So you're asking for their money on top of the money you're already receiving. Because the truth is, independently, what do we do? How do we make it? even though we are making things that make other people money. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, we also have to be honest about the fact that no matter how benevolent the people at the tops of these companies don't necessarily want us to be able to independently make our own money because that cuts into the profit that made them billionaires. So, I mean, that's what's really the tough spot in all of this when we're talking about these platforms is that we know that the people at the top of these platforms are rich. It is not in their best interest to support our independent making. (laughs) It's just not in their best interest, not financially. You know, it's money is a weird game and creators are in the weird place of being in high demand, but also being valued very low. I, I don't think selling ads is selling out. I don't think doing sponsored content is selling out. I don't think selling out is selling out until you have compromised your values in some way. That is the only version of selling out that I ascribe to. Everything else usually is just somebody else's attempt to, again, police your identity in some way or police your work. When I was in high school, I really thought I wanted to be an actress. I really, really did. And then a good friend of mine decided he was going to become an actor and ended up living in his car for two years in L.A., And I thought about it and I was like, acting means so much to him that he lived in his car in L.A. Uh, I don't think I want to be an actor that bad. I'm not living in a car for two years. You know what I mean? Like, "Mm, no, I must have a different take (laughs) on this thing. And I don't know that that necessarily makes me a sellout. You have to know what you need. And the truth of the matter is, if it came down to it, if somebody said, Ashley, you're not going to be able to feed yourself as a writer, I would go get another job. If somebody said, Ashley, you're not going to be able to have any of the things you want in life if you choose to like full-time commit yourself to your art, then I would do my art part-time. You find room Mm -hmm. for the things you want to do. Committing to them full-time, to me, sounds like it would actually be a mistake for a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people want to do their creative work full time. I think they just want more time to do it. And that's two different things. (laughs) There are a lot of things I thought I wanted that as I get closer to them or as I had the opportunity to have them, I realized very suddenly, thank God before I signed on, actually, I don't want that. I wanted it because I thought it sounded impressive. I wanted it because it was something that somebody I admired had. But when it came to doing the work and doing the thing, I didn't want it. I do not compare my career to anybody else's career because A, I don't know what they want and B, I know what I want and I know that what I want will either become available to me or it won't, but nobody can take it from me. Nobody's going to have Ashley Ford's TV show, Ashley Ford's movie, Ashley Ford's books. Nobody got Ashley Ford's speaking gig because if it was Ashley Ford's speaking gig, Ashley Ford would have it. I remember James Franco got a book deal and people were ranting and raving, you know, about it online. Roxanne Gay tweeted, James Franco did not get your book deal. I remember reading that and being like, holy shit. 
Like, she's right. Like, nobody gets your web series, your Oscar, your book deal. What's for you is for you. And it's going to be there for you when it's time for you to have it. So the next time you're scrolling through your feed, remember that the disconnect between financial security and fame is confusing for everyone. It's confusing for creators who aren't making as much as it seems. It's confusing for fans and followers who think that they're making bank. And it's confusing for everyone else who's trying to break through with their own creative projects and wondering why they can't sustain them when everyone else is. So build your audience as proof of concept. Unite with other creators to figure out how to make money. And if you have a day job while doing all of this, um, excuse my French, but good fucking job. Gabby, Amy, and Ashley all had strong opinions about internet fame and creative survival. Now I want to hear yours. How do you maintain your creativity while still supporting yourself? Are you scrolling through your feed wondering how people are making ends meet? Is there a world where the artist is truly free? Tweet me at popcultpirate or tag me in your posts on Instagram using at popculturepirate, and I cannot wait to hear your opinions about this topic. Seriously, please use the hashtag SOLH, which obviously stands for Strong Opinions Loosely Held. To celebrate season two, we have a bonus episode, so please stay tuned. And please subscribe to Strong Opinions Loosely Held wherever you get your podcasts and rate us while you're there. This episode was produced by Sarah Bernard and edited by me, Elisa Kreisinger, with help from Jesse Ridner and Daniel Huerta for Refinery29. We recorded with Paul Ruest, and we'll see you back here next Monday.